All right, Riverhouse, let's get back on our feet. We love gymnastics around here. We're going to read the Word of God together. If you have your Bibles, good job bringing them to church. Let's turn to the book of Acts. We're going to read the first eight verses from Acts chapter 1 together. I'll take you a moment, give you one more moment to get there. It will be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. I would encourage you to bring a physical Bible to church, not your phone. You know why? Because if you're reading the Bible on your phone, you can get a text message and then whoop, you're no longer reading your Bible. No text messages come on this. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Never make those. In Jesus' name we pray. All right, this is Acts chapter 1, starting verse 1. In the first account, I composed Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. I ask, God, that you will breathe through this text in Acts and that you will invite us into the very story of God that is still being enacted and lived out on the earth today through your church. God, I thank you that this is your church, your body, and we ask, Lord, that you will nourish us with the bread from heaven tonight. God, you're very living, spoken word to us in this house, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you can see on the screens the super cool graphic. I am shifting gears. We spent this summer on the the Paradox series. Who was challenged by the Paradox series? All six of you were. If you want to further engage with that, which I would encourage you, I know Benji is doing a Bible study uh, throughout the fall that meets on Sundays before church, and they're going to go a dive even deeper into those paradoxes, but we're shifting gears here, and I felt that the Lord put on my heart to spend at least this fall, at least the rest of this year, actually journeying together through the book of Acts. Come on. The Acts of the Apostles. And so really, we're just going to take a deep dive through this story, and we're going to let the Holy Spirit be our guide and actually prophesy through the book of Acts. So even before I jump in, I just want to encourage any of you uh, to, to just uh, 
read the book of Acts, but also to maybe accompany it with a commentary. Uh, N.T. Wright, he has a simple book called The New Testament for Everyone. He goes through all the different books in the Bible. He has one on the book of Acts. I've been using it myself in my own study and preparation for this. I want to encourage you to get his or somebody else's to help us engage and let the book of Acts become a living reality in this community. Amen? Come on, that is good. So I'm just going to read, this is my introduction. I wrote this down, and then I'm going to read it, and then we're going to get in, and we're going to let this uh, introduction that Luke offers us actually set the stage for the journey that we're about to go on through the book of Acts together. If, I, if you are thankful to be in the house of God, let me get a amen and hallelujah. Come on, Jesus. So here's what I wrote. The book of Acts marks the transition from Jesus' bodily leadership to the leadership of the Holy Spirit through the church. We see the church birthed through the Spirit with a mission to herald and enact the kingdom of God on earth. This book begins and ends in mystery. Acts is entirely about Jesus, but in a very different way than the gospel of Luke was. Jesus is now seen through the active partnership of the church and the Spirit. A church yielded to the Spirit will always make Jesus known and fulfill his kingdom mission. At the conclusion of Acts, we are left with a puzzling ending that is not an ending at all, but rather an invitation to enter into the ongoing mission of the church through dependence upon the leadership of the Spirit and continue heralding the lordship of Jesus to all the earth. Acts is the beginning of a saga that we are invited to become a part of. We find an adventure on every page of this book, a living depiction of a people born of the Spirit who are like the wind. Whew, we can go home and next week we'll start, just joking. So let's, let's dive into Acts, everybody. Do you have, if you have your Bible, open them. I want to encourage you. I, I, may, I may play around with either printing and giving you notes or doing more robust um, PowerPoint slides. I don't usually do them because it makes me feel a little congested as a communicator, so I don't have them tonight. But I really want to encourage note-taking throughout this process because I think the more that the, the, there's going to be things that I want you to meditate and actually go back to and chew on even as you are engaging with this as, as this journey unfolds over the, the coming weeks and months. Um, and so tonight, I'm going to let Luke's introduction set the stage for our journey and we're going to look at three important themes here through these first eight verses that we read. The first theme is the resurrection of Jesus. Say resurrection. The second is the kingdom of God. Say kingdom of God. And the third is the empowerment of the Spirit. Say the Spirit's empowerment. So we're going to look at these three things as they unfold and really set the stage for what the rest of the book's going to be about. It's about the resurrection of Jesus, the kingdom of God, and the empowerment of the church by the Holy Spirit. So Luke starts by saying quite a statement. He says, my first account was everything Jesus began to do. This is a mysterious introduction to a book that Jesus himself only shows up in in the first nine verses. But he's saying, this book, it's, I actually think it should be called the Acts of Jesus Part 2. Luke should be called the Acts of Jesus. Acts should be the Acts of Jesus Part 2. And it marks the transition. Acts is the transition from Jesus to his movement. From Jesus to his people. From Jesus to his body. From Jesus to the church. So there's quite a transition going on at the beginning of the book of Acts, right? 
Jesus is going to leave the scene. We're actually going to talk about that next week. He ascends to the throne of God, and the church is left. And it's quite the plan that God has. It's not a plan like any other plan I've ever heard. You know, I've talked to a number of pastors. They have, like, secession plans for when they retire, you know. And I've never heard a plan quite like this. You're just going to leave. You're going to ascend, and then the whole world's going to be transformed by these 12 guys that still don't quite get it. So, anyways... Luke, uh, Luke, the, the, the gospel of Luke was written, it's the same, Luke wrote Acts, and both books are all about Jesus, but in a different way. So we're going to find in Acts that it's everything to do with Jesus, but in a much more mysterious way. Through the church, dependent upon the Spirit, we, we, we're supposed to read Luke and Acts as if it's one story, but there's this transition where Jesus, though he was seen through his earthly ministry, now it just continues, but he's seen through the ministry of the church. That is quite the shoes to fill. And, and like I said, the story's supposed to just keep continuing, and you and I are actually in that same story. That, that, that the world would get the same depiction of Jesus, that, that Jesus said at the end of his ministry, just as you've seen, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. His plan is that we would be so filled with the Spirit that if, he is, if we've engaged with the church, you've seen Jesus. He's just continuing to be seen through the ongoing ministry of the Spirit. This is really cool. So this is the, the, the introduction of Luke. It's a book about Jesus. And we jump right in, just, just the, the third verse here. It says that he presented himself alive. Amen. We have a living Jesus, yes? We have a resurrected king. Which I would say, what does the resurrection mean to us? This is important. Right, the resurrection, a lot of people, I think, view the resurrection as it was this great miracle that authenticates that when we die, we'll go to heaven if we put our faith in Jesus. But that would not have been what the disciples were thinking when they were engaging with a resurrected Jesus who was presenting himself to him alive after his sufferings by many convincing proofs. Right? What the disciples were trying to make sense of is that Though Jesus had died in the same body they'd watched him die, he was now in the same body, but it was a new body, and he was alive. They were touching his hands and his wounds, right? Like, I think a lot of times as Westerners, we start to almost drift to this thing that, like, Jesus was like this ghost or like this really powerful spiritual encounter. He was a human. He had a body, right? And we've talked about this some. The resurrection is the first Fruits of a new creation. Say new creation. It's the first fruits of a new creation. The Jewish worldview, they were looking, they had been believing that a Messiah was going to come and redeem Israel and make Israel the blessing of the earth. They were looking actually for the, the convergence of heaven and earth. And they saw in Jesus the Messiah that was coming as the presence of the new creation that had been prophesied all throughout the Jewish prophets. That God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. And Jesus steps on the scene and says, here it is. I'm the first fruit of that new heaven and the new earth. This is why Jesus is the only person thus far that's at home in heaven and at home on earth right now. He, he's in heaven, but he can come to earth. And he has come to earth. You guys are chewing on this. Right? God is making all things new. Jesus had a new physicality. Some scholars would call it a trans-physicality. 
meaning that Jesus' new body was made of the substance of his old body, but it was an entirely new body. Are you processing this? Like he, he still had the same scars from the old body, but he was walking through walls. But then he was walking through walls and he was eating fish. They were seeing him as a new creation. It's Jesus saying, I'm going to make all things new. Right? A few weeks ago, I talked about how La Pieta is this picture of like the, the master artist as Michelangelo finished this great creation, but it was destroyed. Sin would be the destruction of the shalom of stepping back from perfection. God created heaven and earth in perfection, the original creation. He created the heavens. He created the earth. They were perfect. Sin destroyed them. And God's whole plan is, I'm going to make them new. I'm going to redeem what sin destroyed. Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit of that. It's not saying, now believe in me so that when you die, you're going to escape and go to heaven. It was saying, no, heaven and earth are going to come together in a new physicality. You and I are going to have an eternity in these bodies on this earth. But it will be a new earth, just like Jesus is, is a new body. But it's the old body. Many convincing proofs. So he appears on the scene, resurrected. What does he start doing? This is important. He starts teaching them about what? The kingdom of God. For 40 days, he starts teaching them about the kingdom of God. I think sometimes we think the book of Acts, we're like, it's all about the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Shabba-ba-ba-ba-ba. We forget he taught him for 40 days about the kingdom. Why? Because Jesus actually had to build a mental framework for this young church to start making sense of what does the resurrection mean? That's a good question. What does the resurrection mean to you? Jesus starts teaching. Let me tell you, I'm going to teach you about the kingdom of God. They're like, yeah, you've been teaching this. I'm guessing they listened a little more closely, like post-resurrection. You know what I mean? It'd be like if somebody told me, like, hey, guys, Billy Graham's back from the dead. I'd probably listen to him with a new ear. You know what I'm talking about? It'd be like the guy was dead. He was amazing before he died, and now he's back from the dead. Oh, my gosh. Right? So Jesus is resurrected. He's like, now let's teach, this, let's teach this kingdom thing again. He spends 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God. I love it that the kingdom was, the revelation of the kingdom requires teaching. It requires repentance. It requires understanding. And it requires the empowerment of the spirit. It's word and it's spirit. But Jesus had to actually teach them for 40 days to try to build a mental framework so that they could receive the spirit that we know is coming in Acts 2. So he's teaching them about the kingdom. He's trying to expand and get the disciples to start making sense of what does a resurrected Jesus mean for their lives. So he starts teaching them about the kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? Most simply, it's the rule of God being expressed on earth. You can write that down. It's the rule of God being expressed on earth. What is the rule of God being expressed on earth? It's shalom. 
It's this vision of shalom. This is Genesis 2. When God finishes everything, when God and his priesthood are working in perfect unity, we're stewarding the garden of the earth. Things are fruitful. Things are plentiful. There's no sickness. There's no sin. There's no fear. There's no death. There's just beauty, goodness, peace, shalom. This is the Hebrew sense of shalom. That's the kingdom. Heaven and earth are perfectly integrated. Do this with your hands. This is shalom. This is the kingdom. It's when heaven and earth are one. When God's rule from God's throne, which is in heaven, is in perfect synchronicity with our stewardship of the earth. That's shalom. That's the kingdom. This is God's whole vision. So Jesus is now resurrected. He's like, let me teach you about the kingdom. He's building a framework for them to start understanding what what his resurrection is. And so he's saying this, this, this perfect vision of shalom. He's like got these 70 people around him. He's teaching them for 40 days. It says he was appearing to quite a few people. But what he's trying to get them to make sense of is that his bodily resurrection is the first fruits of what the whole earth is supposed to become like. Perfect synchronicity, right? Again, Jesus is forever a man and he is forever God. So he's saying, look, Heaven and earth are one. If you don't believe that the creation's been made new, touch my scars. It's new. It's been redeemed. And he's like, come on, let's talk about this kingdom thing because this kingdom thing is now you guys are going to carry the message that's going to further advance the redemption that's taken place through my resurrection to cover all the earth. Through the church, we're going to make all things new. This is, right. The redemption, like think of this. Jesus, crucified Jesus, the most brutal, horrible, traumatized picture you could think of, got made new. What's the resurrection prophesying to us? See everything out there that's not made new? I'm gonna make it new. Touch, touch my broken body. I'm new. What's the kingdom? The kingdom is then the advancement. It's the further enactment of the redemption that Jesus experienced through his death and resurrection. It's then, it's propagating throughout creation. What part of creation does it start in? Us. Our hearts, the part of creation that's our brains, our minds, our hearts, our souls. Look at Peter. He's transformed, man. Come on, somebody. Look at Peter. Peter's a coward. Peter just denied Jesus. Peter's like, so not the person to lead this global movement. But he gets redeemed because God's in this redemption business. Relationship with a resurrected Jesus will always mean redemption for whoever he's in relationship with. So he starts by transforming us. The kingdom starts in us, but then it starts to spill out of us. Anybody who comes to me and drinks out of his innermost being will come a river of life that will bring transformation. He's talking about that Ezekiel 47 river and what happens? That river flows into the Dead Sea and what takes place? Fish start swarming. That's a prophetic picture of what takes place when you come into relationship with the resurrected Jesus. That water gets in you and what was dead starts swimming with fish. And then that river, it's a drink, but it comes out like a river and things are made new. 
dead places start to swarm with life. This is just the first three verses of Acts. 40 days talking about the kingdom. You guys are my plan. We're going to further take this resurrection thing to the ends of the earth. All right. You with me? Jesus is teaching them to give them a mental framework to understand what this kingdom mission is all about. And this will take time. We'll actually see the disciples' understanding increase throughout the book of Acts. So it's going to take some time. But he's got to sow the seed. So he's sowing seeds for 40 days. And it's interesting. They asked them this question. This is a few verses later. They said, Jesus, is this the time that you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? Right, we read this sometimes kind of condescendingly. We're like, oh my gosh, they still didn't get it. Anybody said that before? You're like, wow, they still didn't get it. They still didn't get it that he's not just a Jewish Messiah that's gonna be like a political leader. They're like still wanting him to fit into the mold of what they think Jesus should be. Have you thought that before? Like six of you, okay. I've got six strong tonight. I need 12 by the end of the service. It takes 12 to change the world. Lord, give me six more. That's all I'm asking for. So they did. They, they, misinterpreted, they misinterpreted the timing and the scope of what Jesus was talking about in the kingdom. But I do want to make mention that they interpreted correctly the application. And it's actually the application that much of the modern church misses. The application meaning they were expecting Jesus' resurrection to mean something in this world. They were expecting his resurrection to mean, is this the time that you are going to completely redeem Israel and fulfill the prophecies? So their application was correct. Where a lot of the church today interprets the resurrection to primarily have afterlife effect. Escapism. Jesus didn't die and resurrect so that we can escape one day and go to heaven. He he became the embodiment of heaven and earth together. There are this worldly implications to the resurrection and the kingdom of God. Woo! So timing and scope. They did miss the timing. They missed the scope. They thought that the end of the age was at hand. That was not correct. We'll talk about this in a second. It was more of a now and the not yet. Jesus was with them. He was the now of the kingdom of God. But the not yet was still there. They hadn't recognized that yet. And then the scope. Jesus' aim, they thought Jesus' aim was to redeem Israel. The truth is that Jesus wants to redeem all of creation. It's going to take them time to get this. So let's just look at timing. Jesus Jesus brings correction to them here. So he says, it's not for you to know times which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. So God is in control of the cosmic narrative. Can I get an amen? amen? And we don't know the timing of his narrative. Can I get an Amen. The church has been notorious for 2,000 years of being the little kid in the back seat that says, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? I think we're there. Are we there yet? You know, Paul's having to encourage people like 2,000 years ago, you didn't miss it. You didn't miss it. We're not there yet. All right, so this is, this is, this is what I want to say. Is I, I would challenge anyone who claims concrete timelines of Jesus' final return, which would be the full fulfillment of the kingdom of God. I do not believe that scripture gives us anything but strong affirmation from Jesus that nobody knows the time. And then I've heard people say, I know we don't know the time, but you know the season. We've been in that season for 2,000 years. 
And I'm not trying to make fun. I'm just trying to say is we don't know concrete times. But this is what I do want to say about the ultimate return of the kingdom of God is that we should live with both an imminent expectation of Jesus coming back today and a generational vision for what our future with God looks like here on earth. Here's the catch, though. There's only one way that you'll be able to have that, that, that tension embodying in you is that we have to understand what is the return of Jesus actually talking about? This is what they're asking. Is this when you're coming? Is this your return to make all things new? And again, if we have an escapism, we think that Jesus is coming to then take us to heaven. This is when you can't live in that tension if you think Jesus is coming. Because if you think Jesus is coming tomorrow to take you to heaven, why would you steward the earth today? Jesus is coming to restore and redeem all of creation. Which is why we can live with both an imminent expectation, right? We want Jesus back. Last time I checked, the world's still messed up. Do you want Jesus back? I have a lovesick longing. I long for him to come. Like sometimes I think we forget. It's like the church, we have these amazing times of his presence and we think that that's the best it gets. Like no, there's something more coming. There is a physical Jesus with a physical body that I long to look at, to touch him, to hold him, to worship him. Like there is something more than just the presence of the spirit that we're experiencing in this age of the church. We forget this. Jesus is coming back. I want him to come back. We should live longing for him to come back, to make everything right finally, to take us out of the tension of the not yet and the pain and the agony and the brokenness of the world that we're living in. We should be longing of all people, please come, Lord. And also, with a generational vision that until you do, I am going to further enact the resurrection of Jesus and bring redemption to the ones that you love that are hurting and lost and dying on this planet. We can do both of these things if we understand that when Jesus does come back, it is to redeem. And so what we're doing in the meantime is partnering with him that has eternal implications. Everything you do in the name of Jesus in this life will go into eternity. <laughs> Ooh, this is a lot to think about. If you want to study, study Luke 19, the parable of the 10 minas. It only makes sense if you understand Jesus coming back to redeem. It says that a king goes away to take his throne. He gives 10 minas. And the people that steward the minas well, which is money, they receive 10 cities when the king returns. The king doesn't return and say, now come with me to heaven. The king returns and says, your stewardship in this life is going to translate into a greater stewardship in the, next, in the new creation. <laughs> Whew. I want to be a 10 city guy. I'm telling you, church. I want, I want 10 cities. There's going to be some sweet golf courses in those cities. So the kingdom is now and it's not yet. The disciples had what we could call an over-realized eschatology. Say that, over-realized eschatology, which meant they thought that the end was then, which is why scholars would argue that even though Jesus said, once you're clothed with power from on high, you're gonna be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, it's, why did they stay in Jerusalem for so long? 
They actually weren't obedient to the prompting of Jesus to go because they were lingering in Jerusalem because they thought the end was coming. And it was only persecution that made them go. Makes you wonder, would it have been persecution if they would have? Okay, you can chew on that later. That'll come to you at 3 a.m. What is he talking about right now? Overrealized eschatology. Jesus is and was the now of the kingdom. Say now. He's the first fruits. He is the future. He is the fullness of the future. He stepped into time when he was resurrected. He's the living embodiment of what is yet to come in full. He prophesies to us. All things will be made new. Just like I was made new, you'll be made new. Everything will be made new. I will redeem my creation and have the last word. Like Jesus really likes what he made. He went through a lot to redeem everything he created. Satan doesn't get the last word. Jesus does. La Pietà is his masterpiece. He will redeem it. <laughs> He's a covenant God. So Jesus is the now, but the not yet is why the church exists. If it's not a not yet, then we have no purpose. The not yet is all the things that are not yet, all the brokenness, all the things that are not the full expression of the kingdom still on earth. And so in the tension of this not yet, we are told that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us. The message of the kingdom is the advancement of Jesus' resurrection life, the further advancement of the redemption that began in his physical body, extending that to all creation. This advancement begins in our own hearts, minds, bodies, and then it spills out like that Ezekiel 47 river into all creation. This takes place through the Holy Spirit. This is why a believer in a church without the Holy Spirit is nothing. The Holy Spirit, one of the names for the Holy Spirit would be the spirit of the eschatos. Say eschatos. That means the end, the end of the story. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of the end that comes into the now. It's tomorrow's bread today. So when a healing takes place, that's the end coming into time. This is why we're told to pray and to press in and believe that God will give us what is tomorrow's reality today. This is why faith is described as a violent apprehensive force uh, that, 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 that takes hold of it, clings, it grips, and it pulls into the, future, the present. The woman who was bleeding, she was under the not yet, the brokenness of sin, and she reached and took hold by faith of his garment, and the spirit of the eschatos flowed through Jesus. Virtue came, and the presence of the coming kingdom was now. We are born. This is why we are a people of faith. Because we are born in the tension of the not yet. And it is those that have the courage to lean into and believe and reach for tomorrow's reality that will have it. I have so many people that say, well, I've never seen anybody get healed. I'm like, have you prayed for people to get healed? No, not really. How would you expect to see people get healed if you haven't prayed for people to get healed? I told the Lord, or I, told, I used to tell the Lord, Lord, I've never seen anybody get healed. How do I see people get healed? And I had this profound revelation. He said, just start praying for people to get healed. <laughs> we gotta press in. We gotta act as if Jesus means it when he says his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
that there would be a breaking in. We are to be a people that usher in the break-in of the spirit of the eschatos. The spirit will bring empowerment to the disciples of Jesus and will further enact the accomplishment that Jesus did on the cross. That is the redemption of heaven breaking into earth. It starts in disciples' hearts. Think of Peter. It will spill over into the world. Think of what took place in cities like Ephesus. Such transformation that it says the equivalent of millions of dollars worth of paraphernalia and witchcraft were burned in the city streets. What would it take? I was just in New York City. So secularized, so heathen, so much brokenness, seedy. It was, it, there's, there's, a, there's something that, that makes you feel almost gross because of the lack of the presence of Jesus in that city, which is the, perhaps the urban center of our nation. What would it take for people to burn millions of dollars worth of things and paraphernalia in a city like New York? That's the Ephesian revival. That's the resurrection. That's the kingdom making all things new. How did that happen? One man. One man who was transformed on the inside named Paul. One man with God is always a radical majority, but he just needs a believer. So Jesus addresses timing. He then addresses scope. They thought that God was concerned only for Israel. He says, you'll be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Witnesses is the word herald. It's very similar to the word apostle. It was a political word for a diplomat that would be sent to proclaim the kingship and the message of a ruler. Jesus is saying, you're my heralds. You're my mouthpieces. You're the living embodiment of my kingship. You have to know me, be with me, be intimate with me, behold me, so that I can then send you out to be my herald to the earth. This is Mark 3, 4. Behold, you have to behold him, become intimate with him. We make him known through our intimacy and connection. But then he says, you're my heralds, not just to Jerusalem, but to Samaria, Judea, to the ends of the world. It's like he's gathering these young Jewish boys together and he's saying, friends, you've got to think globally. You're thinking way too small, guys. We're not just trying to redeem Jerusalem. We're not even just trying to redeem the Galilee. We're trying to redeem the earth. That's my mission. We're going to make all things new. I just feel prompted to remind you tonight, brothers and sisters, that as disciples and followers of the way of Jesus, we've got to think globally. Small-mindedness means nothing before God. That is not humility. Humility before God is the dependence to believe him for what he says. You are called to the ends of the earth. We are called to be the heralds of the message that Jesus was dead. He rose three days later as the first fruits of a new creation. And if God can redeem Jesus, he can redeem everything else. And I'm going to prophesy it to the darkest and the most broken places wherever the Spirit sends me. We're an apostolic people. (laughs) We don't have the luxury of just thinking about our nice little lives. Our culture tries to make it. It's like your retirement, your 401k, your house, your future, your family, yours. And we can build these little kingdoms and we forget that we're part of the greatest 
the greatest enterprise ever thought up. That we have the power inside of us to transform the world. But we've got to think it. We've got to expand the horizons of our imagination and get past ourselves to recognize that our life is not our own. We have been purchased with a price and we've been called to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Wherever the wind of the Spirit blows, we got to catch that wind and go. Because we're heralds. Isn't Acts powerful? I am not making any of this up. I got it all from the Bible. Okay, I'm going to end with this. If, 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 I think I'll be good on time if the kids can just come in at maybe like 6 o'clock. We're going to have a little time of, just, of, of some contemplation. But Jesus said to wait for what the Father had promised. Say wait. Wait. We think of waiting in our context as twiddling your thumbs, twiddle-doo, twiddle-dee. That's not biblical waiting. Waiting, the word picture for Hebrew word waiting would be uh, a hunter waiting in the blind for the game to pass by. So it's active. I've heard stories. I'm not a hunter. I don't, I, I don't like being outdoors in the cold. <laughs> waiting in a blind for endless hours. Just for, the, just for the experience, you know? Did you, get a, did you get anything? Oh, no, but it was the best weekend of my life. I'm like, wow, I don't get that. I like to play golf. I know I'll get 18 holes in. I pay him the money. I get to play. I, you know, I get the experience. So anyways, I'm, I'm teasing. But I have heard I have hunting friends, and they'll, like, do crazy things, like not shower for four weeks and pour deer urine over them so that they smell the same as the animals, one with nature. They're slowly working through that thing and then they finally get in that blind, you know? It's like they've paid the price. Their wives have paid the price too. (laughs) This is a family sacrifice just to get into the blind. You don't fall asleep at that point because they've been preparing for weeks to get into the blind. Not just that, they'd also been preparing to find out where to put the blind because they'd been preparing to find out where the tracks of the game went by so that they could position themselves in the blind at the places where the game was known to pass by. If we want to see a burning bush, we've got to put ourselves in places where God's known to pass by and learn to wait. Jesus saying, wait, wait. He's teaching them for 40 days. Teaching is wonderful. But teaching, knowledge is not enough to make the whole earth new. To be a part of enacting and and furthering the accomplishment of Jesus' death and resurrection. You can't do that with good theology. He's saying you need to be empowered with the spirit of God who comes from heaven upon you. Wait. This is theologian Craig Keener. He says the transition from Jesus to his movement a transition on which the two volumes of Luke and Acts pivot underlines the absolute necessity of empowerment for the mission of God. Just as Jesus did not begin his public ministry before receiving the Spirit, his disciples must depend on God's empowerment and should not even attempt to do anything without it. Makes me think of Abraham. 
Abraham in Genesis 15 is when God makes the covenant with him that like the stars of the sky, so his, his descendants will be. And if you know the story, it's when Abraham, he divides the animals and you get the sense that it's in the morning and he, he divides the animals and then it says as he's sitting there, he has to start shooing away the, the vultures uh, because they start trying to come because he's just having to wait. And then it says it gets dark and he's still shooing away the vultures. And then God does not come onto the scene until it says it was pitch black, like the sun was completely down. Abraham prepared the sacrifice that the Lord had given him, but then he literally waited all day and all night until the deep of night, God himself stepped in. He made Abraham fall asleep and God passed through and made the covenant. It was a covenant that God made with Abraham, but God essentially said, I promised it, I will do it. It's not about you. There was a dependence that, that Abraham had to wait. And if you follow Abraham's story, even the next chapter, the brokenness of Abraham's life was that he would often try to take into his own hands the very things that God had promised. The next verse, the next chapter, chapter 16, is the story of Ishmael, when Abraham frets because the promise hadn't taken place that God himself covenanted to him about. And he tries to take it into his own hands. He goes to Egypt and he's scared and he gives his wife to Pharaoh because he's trying to take it into his own hands. He's, he's wheeling and dealing because there was something in him that was still independent. He wanted to rely upon himself. And it wasn't until the story with Isaac that that thing had to die in Abraham where he finally had to say, I'm tired of messing around. I can't take it into my own hands anymore. And the Lord asked him to sacrifice the very thing that was the means of the promise being fulfilled. So there's this battle that's in Abraham that I think is true of every believer, individual believer, every movement, every church, every, every it's, it comes down to are we gonna rely upon ourselves or are we gonna rely upon the spirit? Jesus is saying, wait, wait, wait upon the spirit because the church that relies upon the spirit will make Jesus known to the earth in the power of signs and wonders. But the truth is that the church that relies upon herself will make messes in the name of Jesus. Misusing power and ego and manipulation and just cause messes. And we've seen this too. The question is, will you wait? Will we be a people that wait? Are we a leaning people that God promised? Every promise, individual promise on your life, he promised it, he'll fulfill it. The question is, what's the posture of your heart in the waiting? You're gonna make it happen? You're gonna initiate yourself? Are you gonna take your own authorization to do because you know it's the right thing he told me? No, we can all play these games. But the question is, are we being empowered by the Spirit? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and at the proper time, he will lift up. Will we be a people that wait? The church that depends upon the Holy Spirit will make Jesus known to the earth through the power of signs and wonders. I have a few questions for you that I'm just, you, you can write these down, that I, I was praying and I just wanna offer them to you. Questions to provoke you into, are you living a life of spirit reliance or a life of self-reliance? The first question, is prayer the center of your life? And when I say center, I want you to think center of gravity. If you lift something up from the earth, it will return back down because the center of gravity pulls it there. 
What has the center of gravity in your life? Is it prayer or is it other things? I just was in uh, New York with, with John. We saw the U.S. Open. It was fun, like I said. Uh, but I asked him afterwards, what's the, what, was the, what was the highlight of the trip? And we went. We were there for like four days. We went to church on Sunday. We went to a prayer room, a 6 a.m. prayer on a Tuesday morning. He said, honestly, dude, it was that prayer meeting on Tuesday. I was blessed when he answered that to me because it told me prayer has become the center of his life. You, you're pulled there, and you actually start to define your life from you go out, but you're always pulling in. It's in to out, in to out, in to out. Second question. Do you hold decisions, both big and small, before the Holy Spirit for discernment? Another way of saying that is, what does listening look like in your life? How much space do you give to listen to God? Third question, Proverbs 3.12. It says that uh, the Lord disciplines those he loves. He loves the third question is, do you love the Lord's discipline? Meaning, do you have space for him to tell you no? Like, be honest. I know some of you, you have no space. You go to God and you ask things, but there's no space for no. And when he tells you no, what do you do? Fourth question, do you obey the Spirit's promptings in your life? Do you receive his communication with holy fear or as suggestions? Fifth question, do you find yourself doing uncomfortable things frequently? The Holy Spirit is a comforter because he calls us to uncomfortable places. <laughs> says, I'll be with you the whole way there through, but it's not easy. Do you find yourself doing uncomfortable things frequently? Six, do you find yourself seeking out godly counsel from spiritual leaders in your life? Is there gratitude in your heart when they offer perspective that differs from your own? Part of reliance upon the Spirit is that he actually cultivates you to lean into the counsel of those around you. There's an interdependence that he produces in our hearts. So those are six questions. Uh, we know we're, we're on a journey. We're going to get to Acts 2, but I feel that this is the introduction I wanted to offer tonight is actually to prepare a framework for understanding the resurrection, the kingdom of God, and the empowerment of the Spirit. And at the heart level, it's about our willingness to wait and be reliant upon the Spirit. The book of Acts is the beginning of a story that we are being invited to become actors within. It's as if we're watching a movie when we read the book of Acts, and then the end of the movie, we somehow find ourselves in the screen. <laughs> Whoa, I'm doing it now. But it's all going to depend. Our, our ability to enter into the story will be about the posture of our heart, yielded and waiting for the Holy Spirit. The church is a people born of the Spirit who are to be like the wind. I looked up the word adventure in the Bible. This is what it means. An unusual and exciting, typically hazardous experience or activity. An unusual and exciting, typically hazardous experience or activity. 
When I read like the wind, I hear adventure. And this is the question I want to end. I want to pose this to us all. Is your life a God adventure? If not, is it because we have so successfully quenched the spirit in our lives that we've been forced to settle for a domesticated Jesus and a domesticated gospel? I have a poem that I'm gonna read in closing, but this is what I wanna do, is I actually wanna just create space for the conviction of the Holy Spirit to do a work in this room. I, I have a sense uh, that the Lord, there's, there's inhibiting mindsets, belief systems that constrict, that quench, that oppose the ministry of the Spirit. And I just wanna create space for the Holy Spirit to actually come and perhaps disturb some of us from where we are into a different place tonight. And I, I have this poem. It's by a man named Sir Francis Drake. I'm gonna have the worship team. They can come, maybe just play, play softly, play, play piano. Um, I'm, I, I'm gonna invite us all to just stand. This is a poem, it's called Disturb Us, Lord. <laughs> This is what we're gonna do. I'm gonna have them play. I'm gonna read this and then we're just gonna wait. And if you are sensing the conviction of the Holy Spirit in the waiting, I want you to respond to him. Uh, respond to him whatever he tells you to do. But the altars are open and I have a sense that some, he's gonna just invite you to respond and, and to come down. But I, 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 I just want you to wait upon the Lord and then follow him uh, in, in wherever he leads. But this is the poem. Disturb us, Lord, when we're too well pleased with ourselves. When our dreams have come true because we've dreamed too little. When we've arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we've ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we've allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture into wider seas where storms will show your mastery. Where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to lead us into the future with strength, courage, hope, and love. Holy Spirit, I ask that you will disturb us out of anything and any posture of heart, Lord, that has unknowingly quenched your leadership in our lives, that you will disturb any root of independence and self-reliance that still has a place within us and that we will relinquish control. And I ask God that tonight you will come with your conviction and that you will disturb us into deeper waters, into wider seas where storms will show us your mastery. Not losing sight of land losing sight of the guardrails and the handles and all the things that we look to give us a sense of control. 
Lord, as we lose sight of the land, may we find the stars. Disturb us, Lord, and convict us in the depths of our center, our being, that we were made for an adventure called following Jesus. everyone to to wait for five minutes before you leave. I'm just going to wait upon the Lord. We can wait together. If he convicts your heart, I want you to respond. Come forward. Do whatever he tells you to do, but, but come forward. If you feel the sense to come forward, we'll pray with you. Jesus name.